Money Talk is hosted by Annex Wealth Management, a fee-only registered investment advisor. Important information about the qualifications and business practices of Annex is available at AnnexWealth.com. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk. Please consult with a qualified fiduciary advisor about your specific situation. Welcome to Money Talk, the longest-running weekly personal finance radio show in Wisconsin. Annex Wealth Management is a proud member of the Barron's Top Advisor List and the Financial Times Top 300 List. Know the difference. Now, here are your hosts, Dave Spano and Mark Oswald. Yeah, welcome to Money Talk. It is uh, Saturday. It's July 20th. And yes, it feels like July. Yeah, for sure. Wow. Dave Spano is not here with us. He is either hopefully either catching, kissing a muskie and then releasing it, or he's on a golf course, but a little well-deserved time off. So well, Mark sure. Oswald is here. So is Derek Felsky. Good morning, guys. Morning, morning. Good morning. We always like to start the show, guys, with a little weekend review. And, you know, we're starting to get those dog days of summers a little bit. Not much is going on in the market, kind of the wait-and-see game right now, Derek, for a lot of different things. And I think you saw that this week with the markets. Pretty flat, not a whole lot of movement on any one of the days this week. But I think there's really three things that are going on. We're waiting on the Fed. We're waiting on some resolution of the trade tariff dispute. And we're waiting on earnings reports to start to pick up. Let's take those things in order. Start with the Fed. And, you know, we got the FOMC meeting at the end of July. And what are the prospects now for a rate cut coming up at the end of the month? Well, the, the prospects for a 25 basis point rate cut are roughly 100% according to the Fed Fund futures markets. But the chance of a 50 basis point rate cut has actually risen somewhat substantially over the last several weeks, up to a 43% chance. Historically, the Fed does not act unless the probability is north of 50. So we'll, we'll be monitoring that very closely as we go into that meeting. You know, the confusing part, I think, for a lot of listeners this morning is, you know, we come on the air and we talk about jobs. Jobs numbers have been good. Inflation's been pretty tame, one and a half, two percent, depending on the measurement that you use. You start to see things like manufacturing picking up, and people go, well, the economy's doing pretty well. Why are we cutting rates? I think we're cutting rates because we're being preemptive on what was a, you know, has been an inversion of the yield curve for roughly 30 days. The reason the yield curve's important is if you think of yourself as a lender, and you're looking at risk-free rates at the short end of the yield curve, let's say the three-month T-bill, and the long end of the yield curve, the 10-year bond, if that rate in the long run is sh is lower than the rate in the short run, you're going to be borrowing at a, at a rate higher than you're going to be able to lend, which then causes banks to pull back and not lend and, and create the juices that cause the economy to grow. So you could get to a situation where you have that inverted yield curve lead to a recession. It doesn't always happen, but sometimes that can happen, and that's the fear. That is. And, and so right now, you know, we've talked a lot about the yield curve being inverted. Well, it's no longer inverted because of the expectation the Fed is going to put downward pressure on short-term rates. The other convoluting factor all along, though, has been the $13 trillion in sovereign debt overseas. It is trading at a negative yield. For example, the German Bund is trading at a minus 40 basis points. So you're basically paying the Germans for 10 years to take your money. And that's caused rates here to remain low because overseas investors look at our rates as more attractive. So there's no alternative. It's back to Tina, right? So the money's going into bonds drives the price of the bonds up, drives the yields on those bonds down, and that causes something of the inversion of the yield curve. It does. And so by putting downward pressure on the short end of the yield curve, as the Fed is currently doing and is likely to do at their meeting, uh, that can equalize things and take the pressure off the banking system, perhaps improve net interest margins. And we saw that in some of the financial reports we saw this week from the major banks. 
turn your attention a little bit to China now and what's been going on with the tariff talk that seems like it's been going on forever. And there was the G20 meeting at the end of last month when we thought there would, might be some movement between the two countries on the idea of trade. So anything new there or, or are we just going to continue to have this wait and see approach? I actually think we're going to be waiting for a lot longer than, than some people think. I mean, progress towards a U.S.-China trade deal is cl- clearly stalled. For example, the president last week mentioned that he thought that the uh, that China is basically letting the U.S. down. They are not purchasing the soybeans that he claims they had agreed to purchase. At the same time, Larry Kudlow on Wednesday basically uh, raised the possibility that China's economy may follow the same direction as the Soviet unions did before the full collapse of that economy. <laughs> that's saying a lot. I mean, if, you, if you're on the Chinese side of this this dispute, that that's pretty heavy stuff. Yeah, and the Chinese are all about saving face. He does not want to look to be kowtowing to, to our president, who, of course, will tweet that he was victorious in this, this negotiation. So, you know, with the 2020 election looming, the U.S. economy doing well, Trump has some leverage there, but the Chinese leader is elected for life. So this is going to be a prolonged negotiation. Uh, we're still trying to figure out how we're going to handle this whole Huawei situation. Right. The administration said to U.S. semiconductor companies, no, you cannot sell into Huawei, which essentially would make that company irrelevant, even though it's currently the largest telecom equipment provider in the world. I think that's an important distinction for people that are listening again this morning, who Huawei is and why that's important. A big company in the Chinese economy. And if they can't get parts from the U.S. distributors, that's a problem. But the, but the argument, though, is the reason they're the biggest company it's in the telecom they equipment. But yes, they, they get product. They re-engineer it. They do it for cheaper. They don't have to invest in R&D like our U.S. companies have. And this is really at the crux of this issue, that the Chinese essentially have been cheating, whether it's against World Trade Organization uh, dictums or whether it's just fair play or fair trade, whatever we want to call it. And it's going to be, a, I think, a very long-term negotiation, a long walk, if you will. Derek Felsky, Chief Investment Officer at Annex Wealth Management. If you're interested in working with us, we would love to help you out. The uh, You can start at AnnexWealth.com. Just click that Get Started button. Very quick process. Your contact information, uh, how best we can get a hold of you. We won't bug you. We promise that. Investment range, how you heard about us. And then the most important thing right at the end is tell us a little bit about yourself. Again, that's Annex Wealth Management. Just click that Get Started button. Custom tailored investment and retirement planning from a fee-only fiduciary. Know the difference. This is Money Talk on WTMJ. And we're back with Money Talk. It is Saturday. It's July 20th. Website, AnnexWealth.com. All about team, tech, and trust. Hit that Get Started button. Fill it out. Takes about two, maybe three minutes, and uh, you're on your way, Mark Oswald. Well, and the other thing is you're not committing to anything at that point in time. You're just, you, you know, we challenge our listeners to know the difference all the time. And, and that's all we're asking is be an informed investor. If you're planning for retirement and who isn't, I mean, if you're getting to that point in time, know the difference between financial services companies. You can get to know a lot by coming in and meeting with one of our wealth managers and just hearing the story and the difference between us and other financial services companies. And if you want to do that, hit that Get Started button on the top of our page at AnnexWealth.com. We'll get in contact with you. You're not committed. There's no cost, but at least uh, get yourself educated and know the difference. So, you know, turning your, our attention, Derek, you know, we talked a little bit about trade and we talked a little bit about the Fed in the first segment. The other thing that's going on right now is we just had earnings season kick off. Talk a little bit about some of the individual companies. How's earnings going in general from a revenue standpoint and a bottom line standpoint? 
Uh, well, so far, earnings season is kind of going as we had expected. Um, earnings estimates have been ratcheted down for the past six months for the second quarter to the point where analysts were actually looking for a negative year-over-year comparison in earnings. Still positive, but not at the growth rate you would expect. So basically, right now, the estimate is for flat earnings in the second quarter. And we've seen companies who report good quarters and, and raise guidance have been rewarded in the marketplace. For example, Microsoft on Friday reported a fabulous quarter. Their cloud business grew over 39%. The stock uh, reached a new all-time high. Their Azure business, which is essentially their competition with Amazon, is, is doing well. And the other important thing about Microsoft, when you think of these really large market cap tech companies, they're one of the few that really is avoiding uh, government scrutiny. They are not being challenged like Facebook and Google have been recently by, by the Department of Justice, by overseas regulators, for example, in the EU, where they've levied fines against both Google and Facebook. So Microsoft, obviously a great quarter. Boeing, another one on Friday. Friday, the largest component of the Dow because it is the highest priced stock in the Dow, uh, set aside $5 billion to potentially compensate victims of the crashes of those two 737 MAX planes. They also are reflecting increased costs. So Boeing stock actually traded significantly higher because it seems like the dark period there with the 737 is gradually passing, and it is a holding in our equity income portfolio. Going back to some of your comments there, Derek, when you start thinking about comparables, when you start thinking about year-over-year comparables, I think you have to have a historical perspective, too, and and not like 100 years of history, but even looking at 2018. When you look at earnings in 2017 and then 2018, I mean, you were talking about earnings going up 20%, 25% for companies. So to see them not stay at that level but pull back a little bit, that's not unheard of. I mean, companies are still making money, and the valuation of those stocks is holding true. 2018 was a very tough year for those that focus on earnings as a driver of stock prices. I mean, anyone with any kind of accounting background would have known that if you cut the corporate tax rate from 35% to 21%, that would reflect in significant earnings growth. So the market clearly discounted that. So last year, despite 20% plus growth, as you mentioned, the stock, stock market went sideways. Well, this year... The stock market has gone up almost 20% for the year. Earnings are flat. So basically what we've seen this year is multiple expansion, whereas last year we saw multiple contraction. And one of the biggest challenges as a stock investor is not just how good is the company doing, it's what are people willing to pay for the growth that they observe and they expect going forward. You know, that's why you go and get a CFA. That's why you go to business school. That's why you work with talented investors over time. You understand that there's a lot of psychology that goes into the pricing of individual equity securities. You see different sectors of the S&P 5 kind of reporting together. This week was bank week, if you will. So a lot of the large banks, some mixed numbers there. What would a rate cut from the FOMC, what would that mean for some of the bank earnings going forward? Is that good for the banks or is that bad for the banks? Well, as you know, Mark, we've held uh, financials as a tactical position in our portfolios. And our thesis basically is, is that the Fed is going to push rates down in the short end, which therefore lowers their borrowing costs. And ultimately, the, the global economy will pick up steam in the second half of the year. That's been our expectation. The hope would be there'd be a trade deal, which that would, then would take a lot of pressure off uh, the long end of the yield curve. So rates would actually start to rise and the yield curve would steep. And that would be great for banks. And banks are trading at a very reasonable valuation to their own history. Now, one could argue that they should because they are under increased uh, scrutiny from Washington. A lot of people blame the banks for what happened in 2007, 8, and 9. Uh, so their business models have changed some. They don't dedicate as much money to proprietary trading. They don't backstop as much in the fixed income markets. So some places where they used to make a lot of money have gone away. But there is a consolidation play there 
there as well. So the banks reported basically mixed results. Goldman, for example, had a super quarter. Morgan Stanley's was not as good. JP Morgan continues to do well at executing basically everyone else in that sector. So you mentioned fixed income. Real quick, you got 30 seconds here. If we do get a rate cut at the end of the month, is, is that time to look at your fixed income holdings, things that are less sensitive to rate cuts, maybe duration on your bonds? I absolutely believe that. In fact, our fixed income exposure looks way different than what you'd expect from a, you know, a, a model portfolio. We have exposure to preferred stocks. We have exposure to short-term bonds where we're getting essentially the same yield with less risk and diminished inflationary expectations. And we also like bank loans in selected areas as well as high-yield bonds. It is 1023. This is Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management. Still more to come. AnnexWealth.com. Team, tech, trust, and a fee-only fiduciary model that works in your best interest. Can your advisor say that? This is Money Talk on WTMJ. Well, the difference is Team Tech Trust and a conversation about structured settlements. Joining me, Ron Johnson, Senior Financial Planner and CFP at Annex Wealth Management. Welcome back. Thanks, Danny. And Eric Strom, Financial Planning Specialist at Annex Wealth Management. Hello, Eric. Thank you for having me again, Danny. So, Ron, structured settlements have been around quite a while. In the 70s, they got popular because it was an alternative lump sum settlements, and that was because of an IRS ruling, right? I think the premise behind the structured settlement was actually to protect the plaintiff a little bit. The thinking behind it was was the the plaintiffs were spending the lump sums quickly and then falling back on public aid later in life. People just kind of blowing through it? Yep. Most of the time, Eric, does this come from like a, a, an accident settlement? Yeah, so the most common things are workers' comp, personal injury, or medical malpractice, that type of thing. So let's imagine a, you know, you're a plaintiff and you have a favorable outcome from your case. You know, at that point, a lot of times you'll be presented with the option to take a lump sum or to do a structured settlement. And both from a tax point of view can be very advantageous. But generally speaking, you know, for a smaller type of case, it's probably smart to not deal with having to have the structured settlement and just taking a lump sum, you know, if you're if it's $50,000 or $100,000. But once you start getting really big case outcomes, uh, structured settlement can really be uh, a very good, from a behavioral finance point of view, it can really help you from not blowing through all of the money. Because it's a sudden windfall and people can't handle it, I guess. That's one of the issues, and that was the, the thought process behind the structured settlement. One of the points you want to think about is when you're on the front end of a lawsuit and you're looking at settlement options, which direction is best for you, Danny? And that's where we recommend getting a professional involved. You know, what would fit better into your financial plan, a structured settlement or a lump sum where you invest it in, in other means? I think it's important to talk about logistically what is a structured settlement. Since this is a financial show, we'll tell you how it actually works in the background. If you are the wrongdoer and uh, you lost your case, what you actually do is the wrongdoer makes a payment to a life insurance company and establishes an annuity which is going to pay a structured settlement to the plaintiff who won the case. That annuity is no different than buying a commercial annuity, which many people who are thinking about retiring or saving for retirement actually choose to do. So a structured settlement comes with all of the costs that a regular annuity does, and it comes with all of the options where income for life, income for a certain number of years. And so it's, it's very smart if you're in a situation like this to seek out a meeting with a financial planner who can help you decide uh, how to structure this. Have we seen structured settlements as part of our uh, client portfolios? 
We have, and and they can make sense in your financial plan uh, with other assets as well, right, Danny? When you look at a financial plan, there's always a couple different components to it. One would be a fixed income source, such as a structured settlement, Social Security, another annuity, and then you have your assets on the other side of the plan, right? We want your plan to have both components so we have some flexibility there. You know, there are other companies who were involved in structured settlements. And in fact, if you Google structured settlements, the top half of the results page are companies who offer, quote, cash now. And there's certainly no shortage of TV commercials for companies who do the same thing. What's that? So these companies are aggressively advertising. You know, imagine that you have a structured settlement. So over the next 30 years, you have a little bit of money coming in every year. And, you know, that's great. But then one day you're at home watching TV and you see an ad saying, hey, you know, yeah, sure, it's great that you're getting a little money every year. But what if we could give you a big windfall today? And sometimes, you know, when you're looking at those bills that are piling up and you're thinking about saving for retirement or paying off your car and you're thinking, wow, a big windfall would be real nice. But you got to think about it. These are for-profit companies and it oftentimes are the same insurance companies that are actually writing the structured settlements in the first place. Ultimately, there are many brokers of these companies, but it ultimately ends up with another insurance company settlement. And, you know, they're in business to make a profit and, and they're running these ads on TV for a reason. So just understand that if you sell an annuity income stream, you're not going to necessarily get the greatest deal in terms of how much money they're going to give you. Danny, I would tell you that just like any financial move, it's smart to plan on the front end. So if you think you need that lump sum because you've got some larger bills or you've got some debt that you have to handle, it's best to do it in the settlement phase. You're going to take a pretty big haircut if you have to sell your annuity to somebody else. And it's not the best course. Planning in advance is ideal and getting good, solid financial planning advice is very smart. That's Eric Strom, financial planning specialist at Annex Wealth Management. Thank you for your time, guys. And Ron Johnson, thank you, senior financial planner and CFP here at Annex Wealth Management. That's why we do planning. Great, Danny. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. Planning and investment insight from a fee-only fiduciary. And we put that in writing. You're listening to Money Talk on WTMJ. Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management, Saturday, July 20th. A hot one. We are a 2019 top workplace, Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Very proud of that. Also, on the 2019 edition of the Financial Times, 300 top registered investment advisors are fourth time. Quite proud about that. Very much so. I mean, when you when you have a third party like the Financial Times or Barron's, for instance, that included us on their list as well, those national types of lists of registered investment advisors, it's humbling because, of course, you know, we, we owe it all to our clients and the trust that they place in us and our ability to deliver you know the team and the tech and the and the trust that that our clients have placed in us so great to be on those lists and and uh, we're very proud of the accomplishments that is mark oswald Dirk felsky is here my name is danny clayton and it's time for ask annex you guys ready we mentioned this earlier ned writes i believe in boeing when is the right time to consider this stock and you did talk about that earlier on the show yeah i think boeing is is something i would certainly add on week was up significantly on friday on the news i mentioned earlier in the program that they've basically have set aside five billion to compensate the victims of those two plane crashes and the increased costs related to it. But at some point in the next three to six months, those planes will be back in the air. Their order backlog remains huge. They've actually gotten orders for that plane in the last month or so, which was a sign of confidence. I mean, Boeing is not a cheap stock, but it's one of the few that has a backlog that is highly predictable and it's a highly profitable company. Essentially, it's a duopoly. Uh, so I would look to acquire, pick up Boeing between where it is currently around 375 and back to say 350 or so, Mark. 
Sask Annex, Stephen writes, a national publication said investing in emerging market stocks is a bad idea. Do you agree? No. <laughs> well, let's get a little more detail than that. I mean, we, we obviously have exposure around the world, and it leads me to a conversation that we've had before, Derek, about active versus passive management. Sometimes you, you know, you'll run out and buy an ETF for, for some region of the world that you want to have exposure to. You know, call it India, for instance. You can buy an India ETF, and then you get companies based in India that, or that you know, are, are selling into India. That can be a mistake for some people because you're getting, when you buy an ETF, you get the whole thing. You get the whole market. And, and why is that a problem? Well, it's a problem because you know, the accounting standards that U.S. companies operate under are much different overseas. In fact, you know, many times you'll find that some of these companies that you think have a real product or, or a factory and whatnot, when you have boots on the ground and you actually go and investigate, you find out that it's a family-owned business where the, the father is the president, the wife is the vice president, and the kid is the head of sales. They have no product, but they have some sort of buzz that's attracted investor dollars. So when we invest in emerging markets, we tend to lean towards active managers. And frankly, the ones we've chosen have done done quite well for us, and they're differentiating, not just in terms of companies, but also countries. You know, there are certain countries that are more business-friendly than others. The other factor with emerging markets that most people don't understand is there's currency risk there. So, for example, if the U.S. dollar is really strong, as an American investor, you're holding an emerging market stock would be going down because it, the dollar is going up against that currency. So you want to kind of pay a little bit of attention to what currency flows are doing. But the valuations in emerging markets are, are really really quite good relative to the United States, particularly after the run we've had since Christmas Eve. The other thing I'd point out is that that's where the real global growth is, you know, rising middle class, um, you know, less debt built up, faster growth. You don't have all these promises that politicians in the developed world have made that have to be honored at some point. So I think emerging markets do belong in certainly an aggressive portfolio and frankly, in just about any portfolio aside from, say, the most conservative of investors. This is Ask Annex. If you've got a question for us, just go to our website, AnnexWealth.com. Look for the Ask button. You actually had somebody stop you in the parking lot, and you wanted to share that question. It was somebody in the parking lot, and it was one of the other tenants in one of our buildings, and, and they said, we were listening to your show, and we heard fee-only, and, that, and that's new. What's the difference between fee-only and fee-based? And I, I was like, wow. I'll bet you we've never done a really good job on Money Talk about talking about the difference between fee-only and fee-based. A fee-based company is a company that has a component that one of the options that you have in working with a fee-based company is to have a fee relationship. The other component that they usually have is a commission-based relationship. So you can be fee-based, but in some cases you're going to earn a commission, in some cases you're going to earn a fee. And for the really aggressive companies, you might be paying both, a fee and a commission. So you have to be really careful about that. So the distinction of a fee only means we only get paid by our clients for the services we provide. There is nobody paying us marketing fees. There's nobody paying us for shelf space. There's nobody paying 12B1 fees to us or anything else. The only fee, only fee, fee only, we get is for the services we provide. So make that differentiation because fee-based is a clever way of saying we have a fee component, but we have all of these other things that are going on that are commission-based, that are marketing-based, and that is a difference that you should know about. You're a good man because you stood in the heat and answered that question. 103 degrees. Yeah, it's Worse today, 105 degrees for the heat index. High today, officially 90. We're sitting at 85 degrees. It is 1041 at WTMJ. This is Money Talk. Team Tech. Trust. Money Talk is straight talk from a local fee-only fiduciary. 
It's time to know the difference. This is Money Talk on WTMJ. Know the difference, Team Tech Trust. Joining me, Deanne Phillips, Director of Client Learning and Development at Annex Wealth Management, CFP, CDFA. And she works closely with a number of clients across all of the Annex Wealth Management locations. Welcome back. Hi, Danny. We're going to talk about credit scores. Interesting conversation here. Most of us know credit scores is that three-digit number. It's somewhere between, what's the low end, Deanne? 350. 350. And goes all the way up to? Well, 850. But, you know, I have people that say, oh, I have an 800. I say anything over like 740. Is like getting an A plus oh, plus. Pat yeah. yourself on the back, but yeah. I was surprised to find out that employers even check people's credits prior to employment. Right? They absolutely do. Um, it's becoming more and more popular. You know, mobile phone companies use them. Many, most landlords do now also. So a poor credit rating can hurt you if you go to rent somewhere. We hear the whole credit score thing a lot. I mean, I see. TV commercials for Credit Karma, you hear things about bad credit, you you can look up your score for free, that kind of stuff. But you pointed out that my wife and I do not share the same credit score. Does that matter? Yeah, so your credit score affects your partner, but your credit score stays the same even after you get married. So it's something that you've built up and you're able to apply for individual credit as well as joint credit. So especially if you want to apply for a mortgage, that's when both of your numbers or anything that you get a loan where it's joint, where they both come into play. But unlike a tax return that you filed jointly, credit scores really are tied to the individual. So if you had a bad credit history and you marry someone with a perfect record, unfortunately, your score won't improve because of that marriage. Lenders do look at both scores on a joint application. So even if one person's score is good enough, their partner's low score just might disqualify them. Now, you can sometimes work around that by only using one person's score and income to apply, but that might not work on a large loan like a mortgage where you need both people's income. Isn't that funny? I assume that over 30 years of marriage, we would have just like bumped it together, but that isn't the case. So why would this be a problem if people are going to go through life and buy stuff, have a mortgage and things like that? When does this become a problem having separate credit scores? You know where I really see it become a problem is when death or disability happens to one spouse, because I'll see the remaining spouse if they were, let's say, think of somebody who's older, like our parents' generation, where really the one woman got married. They've been married for 45, 50, 60 years. And now she finds herself a widow. And she's been an additional add-on signer to her husband's credit cards, but never really had credit run through herself. All of a sudden, she can find herself in a need to establish credit, maybe for the first time. And there are definitely ways to do that. I mean, but maybe think about if the utilities, if the house, if everything ran through her husband's name, and we know it's separate, she could be in a bit of a conundrum if she needs credit in the future. Do you have advice then? I mean, should people have their names on different types of bills to, to build yeah. that up? Is, is that what you do? I don't. I guess I don't know. So there are different types of credit lines. So credit cards are a revolving credit, and they work differently from the kind of loan that would be like a car loan or a mortgage or a home equity line of credit. People who check your credit, they like to see and to build your credit score, all of those different different types used and used well. Obviously, it's not good from a planning point of view to open up a lot of credit cards and only pay the minimum balance because you're never going to get caught up. You do not want to do that, obviously. But if you're just establishing credit, there are ways to do that for sure. 
we're kind of beyond the scope of our discussion for today, but opening up at a department store like a Kohl's or something like that actually can help because it's a little line of credit. They want to watch and make sure that you pay it off timely. Of course, they make their money when you pay interest, so they love that, and they tend to give you more then, but you always want to pay more than that minimum. So there are certainly ways to slowly establish credit, both for people that find themselves suddenly single or millennials just starting out. So, Deanne, any advice for couples whose credit scores aren't even? If somebody checks their number and they're widely disparate, what do they do? Right. So, fortunately, Danny, improving a credit score isn't as complicated as it would seem. So, you have to find out, first off, what your credit report is at annualcreditreport.com is where we like to send people. that You can get a free copy from the three credit bureaus, Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion are the three major ones. And remember that your on-time payment record makes up 35% of your credit score. So the most important thing is making those payments on time by that due date. That will gradually increase your score over time as it is too. And you can sign up for little emails or texts that can come that can alert you when your credit score changes too. I just had one today, in fact, so I was able to click in and see, you know, that went up a tick. I'm like, yay, you know, so um, that's the kind of thing that you can monitor. Now, if your partner has a low credit score because of their own choices, you really should find out why. And maybe it's as easy as having an automatic payment a month that happens or helping them monitor or did they actually run up too much credit card debt during a period of unemployment? or did they co-sign for a loan with a family? All these things have an impact on your credit. And as a married couple, you really should be on top of each other's credit. Is there a point in somebody's life that the credit score doesn't matter anymore because they've got assets, they've got retirement? It doesn't matter? Oh, yeah. We we have older senior people who are suddenly single who come in and, and they'll say, you know, I, I have no interest in applying for a credit card. I don't need it. I've got cash. i got my retirement assets, got my income coming in. I'm good. You reach over and fist bump them. That's right. <laughs> That's where we want to get you folks. So if you got any questions, Deanne Phillips is always available. She is our Director of Client Learning and Development, Annex Wealth Management, CFP and CDFA. Oh, while I have you here, you've got a little patio party coming up for Milwaukee residents. We do. So Annex Wealth Management has an annual patio party for our Women, Wealth, and Wisdom group for people to bring their significant others. Yes, they can be men too. And bring your friends, bring your family, come and hang out with us on our beautiful patio in Elm Grove. This year, it's happening on Thursday, August the 8th. Anytime you can drop by between 4 and 8 p.m. And around 6 p.m., we're going to be introducing staff and talking about some of the events that we're going to have this next season. This is Women, Wealth, and Wisdom, Wisdom, right? right. And do you have to be a woman only, or can can we have guys there? Guys are absolutely welcome to this patio party. It's just, again, drop by, have a drink with us, have some appetizers, meet the group, and just socialize. It's a chance. Finally, maybe we won't have rain in August in Wisconsin, so it's a chance to be outside at our beautiful patio and find out what kind of events we're going to have upcoming. That is August 8th. That is a Thursday Thursday night. It's a Thursday from any time from 4 to 8. We'd love to have you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. W277CV and WTMJ Milwaukee. From the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is News Radio WTMJ. The longest running weekly personal finance radio show in Wisconsin. This is Money Talk on WTMJ. 
We're back with Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management, website, AnnexWealth.com. Offices, Elm Grove, Mequon, Lake Country, Appleton, downtown, and the Fister. And if you can hear this big radio station, 620 WTMJ, most definitely you can use Annex Everywhere, which is simple screen sharing technology. There's an internet phrase called ELI5. It stands for explain like I'm five. (laughs) Mark Oswald and I were talking the other day about share classes. He explained like I was 10. I didn't get it. Could we go a little bit more in depth? Because... I think the individual investor really needs to know about it, and I bet most don't. Well, I think you're probably right. I mean, one of the smartest guys I ever knew in my life was my dad, and and, uh, he one time shared with me a statement that he had gotten from a mutual fund company, and the first thing I noticed was CLB behind the fund company that he had invested in, and I said, Dad, why don't you buy Class B shares? And he goes, well, I don't know. That's just what the guy told me, you know, to to buy those, because they didn't come with a commission. And I said, but they come with, with what's called a a contingent deferred sales charge and they have a higher 12b1 fee internal cost so you're paying that to pay the commission to the guy who sold you the mutual fund i carried that with me for years because of the fact that i think there's a lot of people out there who don't realize that when they buy a mutual fund it comes in all kinds of different flavors and varieties derek we were looking at a large mutual fund complex the american funds and one of their big funds was the investment company of america and i shared with you a screenshot of all the different share classes that are available a's and c's and F1s and F2s and F3s and R1s. It was like 10 of them. It's huge. So depending on who you are, if somebody comes to me and says, I own the investment company of America, my response is, which one? Because there's so many different varieties out there, Derek, and they come with different cost structures. Right. And, you know, and as you know, Mark, when we when we build our our model portfolios on the active side, you know, we, we typically look for institutional share classes with no load, right? And the nice thing about an institutional share class, it has a lower expense ratio than the other possibilities. Now, in cases where it's a smaller account and that account is going to be active, you know, money coming in, money coming out, we might go with a load-waived A-share, right, where we're paying a higher expense ratio but no transaction costs to the custodian, whereas institutional share classes do have a cost from the custodian. So basically, we're trying to equate the lowest possible cost to our clients by virtue of determining whether institutional share classes or load-waived A-shares apply. It's, It's very complicated. It really depends a lot on on the client and the asset base and so on. Well, the truth of the matter is is that cost is a drag on performance. So if you don't know what kind of share class you own, you know, if you're just getting your statement and you say, I own a Fidelity fund, right, or, or I have money in my IRA, and you don't know what share classes you own, you really probably don't know the true cost structure or the cost of ownership, what it costs to be in that mutual fund. And when you're trying to get to retirement or whatever your financial goal might be, cost has to be a consideration. There are different share classes of different mutual funds that are out there. If you don't know what you own, I would invite you to take advantage of that free portfolio review because we will take your mutual fund holdings and run them through our x-ray and we will tell you the true cost of ownership. And sometimes there is a share class that we can move you to, stay in the same fund company, have exposure to the same management company and everything that goes with that, but just drop the cost. And if you do nothing more than that, you have moved yourself closer to your financial goals just by controlling costs. Costs are very important, which is another reason why we use a lot of exchange-traded funds in our portfolios as well. In fact, the ETF industry just reached $4 trillion in assets last week with about 80% of those assets on the equity side. And the advantage of ETFs is their lower cost. You do get beta exposure, but you do have the weakness of having bad companies as well as good in the index that ETF is meant to track. So, for example, since 2009, the uh, large-cap ETF has outperformed 
outperform 95% of the large cap managers. And that's because passive investing is perfect in a bull market where the fear of missing out is prevalent. But there are dangers with that. You know, in an ETF, you get an over-concentration, the top five holdings. For example, the top five holdings in the Russell 1000 growth index are 30% of market cap. So as long as those companies are doing well and aren't overly expensive, that ETF ought to do well, which is why we really drill down and look at the various ETF opportunities that we have by virtue of our quantitative framework and so on. So one of the things that always frustrates me is when I look at other companies, sometimes other investment management terms, is the binary decision that they make. They're either going to be all in mutual funds or all in ETFs. We've made the decision as an investment committee to be smart about cost. And so we use ETFs where the cost of paying a manager doesn't make a lot of sense. We look at share class when we look at mutual funds, so we make sure we get our clients the lowest cost. Cost matters, and it goes to performance. Advice and opinions expressed during Money Talk are solely that of the hosts or guests of Annex Wealth Management and not WTMJ Radio or Good Karma Brands Milwaukee, LLC.